So tonight we are going to talk about friendship, true friendship. When C.S. Lewis wrote his classic book, The Four Loves, he wrote that book back in 1960. It's a long time ago now, over 50 years, if my math is correct. I did go to Berkeley College of Music, so it's probably not. No, it's over, over 50 years. Um, he said in that chapter on friendship that he felt that our modern world had really lost the idea of true friendship. And he was writing this 50 years ago. True friendship, uh, in the sense used by the Greeks and the Latin poets and the Puritans. The Puritans often would pray for one bosom friend. Pray the Lord would give them one bosom friend. Um, and he said this, If a man believes, as I do, that the old estimate of friendship, that means the Puritans, the Greek and Latin view, was the correct one, he can hardly write a chapter on it except as a rehabilitation. In other words, he felt in writing about this that he didn't even have a, a ground to start from. He couldn't build on, on hardly anything that really was true friendship. And I think if anything in our day, while the longing for true friendship, community, has only gotten more intense, I'm not sure that we've grown a lot in understanding what it's really about. I think there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, it's easy to talk about, you know, how we glibly throw around the idea of friends. And I do think that words matter. Marva Dawn said one time that in a culture where we use words like stupendous and amazing to describe laundry detergent, it's really difficult to talk about the gospel in a true way. It really is, right? Words have almost lost their meaning because they're so overused. And I, I heard uh, the other day, Steve Garber, chat, uh, Caleb was there. Uh, we had a, a little luncheon, a few of us. And one of the professors mentioned how, I, I guess it was her granddaughter or her daughter. Anyway, she, she had this little girl that she knew who had come home, four-year-old, had come home from preschool because one of her little friends told her that she was unfriending her. Defriending, yes. Defriending. And she came home to ask her mom, what does that mean, that I've been defriended? Now, I know four- and five-year-old little girls can be cruel, <laughs> because I had one. Um, and I know, you know, little girls can be, you know, territorial. You know, t- if you have three girls, two of them will inevitably say, we don't like you, you know, and they do that kind of stuff. But just think about that, how even that language of friend, defriend, used so glibly, even on the lips of a four-year-old. Friendship is not what it used to be. And I think, you know, sometimes when I talk about community, I think one of the most important questions we have to ask ourselves is, do you really want it, and what are you willing to pay for it? See, we live in a, in a culture, a consumer culture, that basically tells you that you can have anything and everything right away without much cost, put it on a credit card. And, and, and in that kind of consumer culture, it's really difficult to come and embrace and live in such a way that you build the kind of character that allows you to be a friend and to sustain friendships. Let's see what God's Word has to say about this. There are lots of passages, like I mentioned earlier, that talk about friendship, but I'm going to pick a couple. One is from the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Now, Ecclesiastes is a book that a lot of people uh, are mystified by. I think uh, one of these days I, I want to do a series on Ecclesiastes again because I really love this book. Ecclesiastes is a book about the frustration of life after sin has entered the world. It is not a book about some sort of skeptic who doesn't believe in God and he's trying to make sense of life without God in it. Um, and I, if we had more time, I could demonstrate that to you from statements in the book. But it really is a book about frustration. The Hebrew word hevel, which means vapor or breath, is often translated, well, in the King James, the old King James, it's translated vanity, vanity. And if you think of vanity in the sense of things that don't have substance and sort of dissipate, well, yeah, that's not a bad translation. The modern translations like the NIV and the ESV tend to translate it meaninglessness, meaninglessness and make it into a book of existentialism, which is not what it's about. It really is a book about frustration. And yet in the midst of the frustration, it commands us, the book commands us, to take joy in our wife and our work all of these frustrating days of life and talks about different gifts that God gives us to mitigate and even help us taste his goodness even in the midst of the frustration. And this idea, this section here in chapter 4, talking about friendship, is, is an example of that. So here, here, here's Ecclesiastes chapter 4 with that as a little introduction. The teacher says this, I observed yet another example of something meaningless or hevel, frustrating. Here's something else that's frustrating. This is in the middle of a whole list of frustrating things. I observed yet another example of something frustrating under the sun. This is the case of a man who is all alone without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can But then he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It is all so meaningless, frustrating, and depressing. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Now, the Bible has lots of other things to say about friendship. I grabbed one other, one verse out of Proverbs 27. There are literally scores of verses about friendship in the Proverbs. But this one I picked because it tends to be pretty countercultural to the way we think about friends today. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And then this passage, the words of Jesus from John chapter 15, starting at verse 13. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You, he says to the disciples, are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves or servants because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we thank you for these words, and yet, Lord, we need more than these words. We need your spirit to make them effectual to us tonight, even through the foolishness of preaching. We pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I have two quotes and two realities that I think will set the stage for why community and friendship is so difficult in our day, in particular in the church. First, this from Marva Dawn, Lutheran theologian, who I really enjoy so many of her writings. She says this, community in the biblical sense is more open to the realities of differences, more openly gracious to all, more deliberate and act of the will. It does not depend upon feelings of affection. In fact, sometimes, perhaps always, God seems to put us in a community together with people whom we don't like so that we learn the real meaning of agape, that intelligent, purposeful love directed toward another's need which comes first from God and then flows through us to our neighbor. To develop a community that practices biblical principles is very difficult in this technologically efficient society. It takes a lot of work and time, sacrifice, and commitment. That's Marva Dawn laying out a little bit about what the goal is in community. And second, this from Dick Kyes. Dick Kyes works at Labrie Fellowship up in Massachusetts, a ministry um, that has for years been a place where people with questions and, and concerns and doubts can go and have them taken seriously in a community setting. He says this, The modern world works most smoothly when people come together who are just like each other. But it is a mistake to assume that the church of Christ, in the name of efficiency or effectiveness, should aim at homogeneity. What works in marketing may actually destroy the church and turn it into a lifestyle enclave. Seeking for people, listen to this, seeking for people who are all alike suggests that the Apostle Paul got it wrong when he suggested that the church's strength was its internal, internal diversity, which he talks about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And then two realities, which these quotes certainly are bumping up against. We live in a consumer society, yet community and friendship are not commodities dispensed by the church, by RUF, or by anybody else, your university. There are a lot of, a lot of organizations that want to promise that they can just give you community, but it doesn't work that way. Community requires sacrifice, which is the one thing a consumer culture avoids like the plague. Reality two, we are perfectionists who fear investing our hearts in places where we might get hurt. And there's no way to have real friends without the possibility of real hurt. The only safety is in the shallows. So what is friendship? What is friendship? Now C.S. Lewis, like he says, is trying to rehabilitate this. And he says there's a few things that we need to understand. And the first we see in our text in Ecclesiastes, which is the, the distinction between friends and lovers. Now there are, I know, some people who use this last verse of Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12, a cord of three strands 
for their wedding because it's the bride and the groom and Jesus. That's not what it means. If you want me to do your wedding, I will tell you usually in the first session that I will not use that passage in your wedding uh, because that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about three human friends. And this gets at one of the things that's different between friends and lovers is that friends are never just exclusive. Though in a sense, sometimes there seems to be a natural developing exclusivity because both of the friends see something that they love and that they just want to share with others. And sometimes that can have the effect of other people feeling excluded because they don't see it. But Friends are always happy to have other people see it and share with them. Here's here's the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, in some ways, nothing is less like a friendship than a love affair. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Friends, side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. Above all, eros, which is sexual love, while it lasts, is necessarily between two only. But two, far from being the necessary number for friendship, is not even the best. And the reason for this is important. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to carry the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. And then he talks about an example of from his own life where one of his friends had died. There were three of them, and he thought that when this one person died, he'd have the other guy all to himself. He said, now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to Charles' joke. He's talking about Charles William and Ronald as J.R.R. Tolkien, who is his good friend. He says, far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is dead, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. And yet for a lot of us, what we think of as friendships are really jealous and exclusive. And we may wonder and probably should wonder whether or not they're really friends in the biblical sense of friendships. Many of our friendships are an attempt to suck life out of another person. And sometimes, and a lot of people think this is the ultimate goal, is to find two people who want to mutually suck life out of each other. And it can seem for a while very alive, can seem like what you were made for. But one of the big questions is, is this friendship happy to have others come in the picture. True biblical friendship is even two is great, but three is even better. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Why? Because there's something bigger that the friendship is about. In other words, friendship is not just about friendship, and it's, it's not just about companionship. It's not just about having somebody to hang out with, right? Now, Lewis says that often um, we confuse companionship and friendship. Listen to what he says about this, and then, um, well, just listen to this. He says, uh, companionship is often called friendship, 
And many people who speak of their friends mean only their companions. Friendship arises out of mere companionship. So it has to have, you've got to start with companions, right? But it arises when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or taste which the others do not share, and which until that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. It is when two such persons discover one another, when whether with immense difficulties and semi-articulate fumblings, or with what would seem to be amazing and elliptical speed, they share their vision, it is then that friendship is born. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, it might be something like a band. It's not just we don't like, it's just we like this band, but there's like something about the way they capture the world, the condition of the world and articulate it and say it in musical style. It's just, it touches me at a deep level. And to find somebody that says, yes, me too. Or ultimately, I would say, what Christian friendship needs to be about is the gospel and the kingdom of God, which is to say, everything that exists, because God's kingdom involves everything that exists. And there's, 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 a, there's a way of, of being able to, to talk about this that other people begin to say, but what does that presuppose? That you're actually talking about what you love, which means you actually have to be somewhat in proximity, and somewhat you have to have the opportunity to talk about what you love. The problem with companionship is so often it's just hanging out doing things where you never actually get to engage or talk about what you really love. I I remember years ago, I was um, really desperately lonely. And I I love how Ecclesiastes says, what's so depressing and frustrating is to be alone. Because we know, even before sin entered the world, God said it's not good for man to be alone. And yet loneliness is probably the number one concern that people have in our day and age. So in the midst of this loneliness, I had a rare opportunity to go hang out with some friends who I didn't really know very well, so I think they probably would be more companions. But I was hoping that we could be friends. But every time we got together, all they ever wanted to do was go out and see a movie. And after, you know, a few weeks of this, I thought, this is my one night when I'm free. I was working 80 to 100 hours a week in a recording studio. And I I had one little opportunity to go hang out with people. And we went and saw a movie. And then we chatted for a few minutes in the parking lot. And then we went home. I was like, this is so tragic. Like, Christian believers can't do anything better than just hanging out. And we called it fellowship. It was nothing of the sort because it wasn't around anything. It was distraction together with a warm body next to you in the theater so you didn't have to face how lonely you really were. I don't want that for you guys. I don't want you to settle for that. But the thing is, you're going to have to tell people that you want more than that. Because not only are a lot of people that you know willing to settle for that because they don't hope they can have anything more, but they don't know where to start. And all I can tell you is I'm a lousy friend. <laughs> I really am. I'm, up, I'm wondering all, week, all day long, I've been wondering, like, I don't have anything to teach people. My wife will tell you. She's a good friend. She keeps up with her friends. She talks to her friends. I kind of get really distracted, and I don't say no to things so that I can say yes to being with my friends. And I don't want that for you. 
But here's one of the things, like key to being able to be a good friend is to just confess to some people that you might have the potential of being friends with. I have no idea how to be a friend. But I know that I don't want us just to be mere companions. Now, here's the thing. Your heart might get triumphed triumphed on. Somebody might say, yeah, I'm not really into that. I can't guarantee that for you. And so that's why we move into this next thing. Here, here's what's interesting. The great, the great irony in a culture which idolizes friendship and longs for community, it's such a buzzword, there's very, very little real friendship. Loneliness is rampant. The great tragedy, the great tragedy in light of this is those who only merely want friends are basically doomed to never have them. Listen to this. This is again C.S. Lewis, and I think he's on to something exactly right here. He says, he talks about these pathetic people who simply want friends and how they can never make any. The very condition of having friends, he says, is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth, I only want a friend, no friendship can arise. Though affection, of course, may. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something. Even if it were only enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Now those words really touch a a nerve inside of me. Because I will tell you, easily into my 30s, that was my life. And I did not know how to get out of it. I only want friends, and I'm willing to use whatever I can to get friends, and it never works. So what do you tell somebody that says, I just want friends? What Lewis says is you can't have friends by just wanting friends. You actually have to have your heart invested in something bigger. You have to be captured by some bigger vision than mere friends, to actually have friends because friendship has to be about something. Here, here's what it means. You know what? It's not just enough. This may sound crazy, but this is, I think this, I'm on solid biblical ground here. It's not just enough for you to have a relationship with God and have a relationship with, through Jesus and have a relationship even with other people. If your heart is not dominated by the kingdom of God, something will be askew in your life and you will feel it in your friendships. You may not know that's what's going on, but God has made you in such a way that you weren't just created to just stare in God's face forever and ever and say, oh, wow. No, he made you in the garden. Even when Adam and Eve walked in this perfect fellowship with God in the cool of the day, they still were about something. They were about bringing out all of the God-glorifying potential that he had built into his world. And friendship forms around that. Here's an aspect of God's creation that's full of God-glorifying potential. And I want to be about giving myself to that. Is anybody with me? Here's an aspect of God and his creation. And look at how, you know, this this composer has has taken some of the God-glorifying potential in the area of sound and and has formed it into something beautiful. Look at it with me. If, if, 
If your heart is not, if you think Christianity is just about settling the what happens when you die question, you really don't understand Christianity. And I think ultimately you will be miserable because you were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But that doesn't mean that you just stare into his face forever. It means that you be about his kingdom work, which will go on for all eternity. You will never get tired of exploring and bringing out the God-glorifying potential that he's built into this universe. And now is the time to kind of whet your appetite for it and to practice. And in doing that, being vocal about that, sharing your passions, friends will come along. So the great tragedy is those who simply want friends will never really make any having a common purpose and a common sense of what's beautiful is absolutely vital for friendship. And again, Lewis says it so great. I love this. You'll see I posted this on Facebook, didn't I? You'll not find the warrior, the poet, the philosopher, or the Christian by staring in his eyes as if he were your mistress. Better fight beside him, read with him, argue with him, pray with him. How do you find who your friends can be? How do you find who can be a friend that you might even marry one day? Fight with them. Pray with them. Read with them. Argue with them. Remember Tim Keller said one time, I pray that you marry somebody who will tell you no, otherwise you'll never know who they really are. What are you looking for? Somebody that you get along with so well that you never ever fight? Don't marry that person. Because neither of you are being honest. And that's a, terrible, that's a terrible recipe for a marriage. Especially if it's supposed to be an iron sharpening iron kind of relationship. It hurts to sharpen iron with other iron. If you're the iron, seems to me. <laughs> like little bits of it have to get knocked off, don't they? Yeah. But that's, that's what God has called us to be about. Couple, couple more things and then, then some, uh, some questions. Let's jump to this last page about the gospel, true friendship. It's, it's Keller says, and I, I think it's, ba- it's based on this idea, John 15. Jesus talks about there's no greater love than to lay one's life down for one's friends. And then he talks about how you're not slaves anymore, you're my friends. Why? Because I've told you everything. I've let you in and I'll never let you down. This is the heart of what it means to have a true friend, somebody who lets you all the way in and never lets you down. And yet, as soon as I say that, we realize, like, I'm not cut out for that. I'm afraid. That's very risky. And I'm not sure I can find somebody who's like that, though we go about auditioning people all the time, don't we? I think it's one of the barriers to real friendship is we're, we're so afraid that then we basically put people to the test and audition them to see if they can really stand up and be faithful. And the fact is, no one will pass the audition. Or if they do pass the audition now, eventually they'll fail you. The only basis for having real friendship, being able to let people in and not letting them down, is to have Jesus come in to your life. Because the reason that you don't let people in, and the reason you will let people down, is because you're prideful and you're afraid. And that's my problem. But I'm not stuck in that problem if I know Jesus. Because 
Jesus dying on a cross in my place deals with fear. Oh, it doesn't just automatically make it go away. It's like, okay, I know that. I won't be afraid anymore. No, it has to, you have to use that truth to batter your fearful heart. How can I be afraid? Jesus lived and died in my place. And he rules the whole universe by the word of his power. How can I be proud? Jesus was tortured in my place. And I think I can walk around and act like the whole world owes me. I deserve death and hell. So the cross and what Jesus did on the cross is the true basis for you being able to be a friend because the barrier to being a friend is fear and pride. That doesn't mean that this happens automatically, but this is the key, is to using the gospel to fight against the things in you that make you a crappy friend and fight against the things that you fear and thus keep you from letting other people in. And how can the gospel... How can the gospel encourage us to wound others? Now, that's a weird thing, isn't it? Proverbs 27. People in the South really like need to understand this, but I think everybody does. The idea, how can you find a friend who loves you enough to wound you in a redemptive way? Flattery is, is really so much of the way the modern world works. And particularly in our day and age where tolerance is kind of the spirit of the age, like the thing that you can't do is to point out how people are different and maybe even need to change, which ends up destroying so much of what friendship can be about and one of the benefits of friendship, which is to appreciate particularity rather than just sort of flattening it all out in the name of tolerance, right? To say this is beautiful in a particular way rather than, oh, yeah, you're just another one of God's children just like every other one, right? So there's something about, you can't wound people redemptively unless you're willing, you're willing to have something be bigger to you than this person's approval. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't really love somebody if you're dependent upon their approval for your life. And so the only way you can live as a friend the way the Bible speaks here, being faithful even to wound redemptively, is if ultimately... You don't have to have that person like you. Now, that's, that's, that's deep as far as the way we think about friendship. And maybe it's not what you signed up for. Remember what I said at the beginning. When you think about friendship, you have to ask, what do I really want and what am I willing to pay? Are you willing to let people wound you? Are you willing to wound? Finally, rejoice in God for the friends you have. Fight hard against perfectionism. You probably have more friends than you think. And you definitely have people in your spheres of influence that could be friends. But I, I know for me, so much of the time, I've, I've sort of idolized certain people and thought, if only this person would be my friend, then I'd have what I wanted. Whether it's, you know, opposite sex or whether it's just a group of people I want to be part of. And yet, in reality, there were often other people around me that I was ignoring. And so, for me, a big part of what I had to learn was to even stop and say, who does God have in my life? And maybe I should spend some time with these other people instead of always looking to these people and trying to be their friend and not even being real and being who I really am 
right? So I don't, I don't know if that might be a word of advice to you, but it certainly was something I could have used in your, in, at your age. Was somebody saying, Kevin, you've always put your sights on these people, and yet what about these people? And honestly, serving others is really the key to friendship. And, you know, I just wanted friends delivered to me. I, I expected God to do it. I expected the church to do it. I drifted from Christian group to Christian group, church to church, hoping that it would just happen automatically. And the fact is, probably in every one of those situations, I had people that could have been friends, but I didn't have any idea how to stay in one place long enough, how to open my heart, how to share my hurts and my passions in a way that people could come along and say, yes, me too. So be encouraged. God is big. God is good. Let's pray together.